Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Hollywood Podcast, covering the latest in film, TV, streaming, and social media. I'm your host, Max Geshwind. Stay tuned for today's episode. All right. Well, Matthew, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Um, and congrats on quite a successful year you've had with documentaries. I know that you had The Fight, which came out at the very beginning of 2020 that played at Sundance. You had Disclosure, which came out later in the year. And then you sort of ended it with Truffle Hunters, which got a lot of accolades and um, a lot of critical acclaim this past awards season. So um, it's quite an amazing year you've had in the realm of documentary. And now you're kickstarting your 2021 with a docu-series, Moment of Truth. Um, mm-hmm. It is a docu-series on um, the murder of Michael Jordan's father, James Jordan. And it sort of delves into that and uncovers some um, stories that we've really never heard before um, inside of that um, murder. It was touched on pretty briefly in The Last Dance, which was a wildly successful um, ESPN series last year. And it seems like this is sort of capitalizing on that for those that were interested um, and wanted to know more about um, what occurred all those years ago. So um, thanks so much for taking time to chat with me today so we could talk more about this project. Thank you very much. Yeah, and it's actually interesting. You know, we were in production on this project prior to even knowing about The Last Dance. I was actually in North Carolina working on this project with the team in Raleigh, and we were at lunch. Uh, we'd left the office and gone to lunch at, and we were like in a sports bar and they had ESPN on and we wow. saw the first commercial for the last dance. And we were like, oh, OK, because, you know, we had started production on this in 2018. So at the time, we didn't know about the last dance, but, um, you know, it didn't really affect kind of the overall story that we were telling. But knowing that they were doing an in-depth story about, you know, Michael Jordan's life we did feel like this was a deeper dive for once, once we had seen that, that this would be a deeper dive for audiences that had questions about what took place around the case. And, you know, one of the things we've always talked about with this project was that it's really a gateway, you know, James Jordan's murder. It's really a gateway to a larger story of what takes place afterwards and what takes place at trial. And so much of this footage had never been seen before. I mean, or had only been seen, you know, 25 to 28 years ago on the North Carolina Nightly News. And that was kind of during a period of time before all of the local news went national. And so if you look at the coverage that took place in the state of North Carolina, which is where I grew up and first saw all of this news coverage, it was so done in such a greater amount of detail than had ever been reported on a national level. So we felt like there was so much to explore in the story at the period of time, but then also with a lot of the new developments and new pieces of information that have emerged about the case over the past three decades. Right. Um, so you mentioned that you're originally from North Carolina, which is where this all yeah. took place. Um, is that sort of what compelled you to take on this project or was it purely coincidental and this was something that you wanted to um, dissect anyway? Well, the, being from North Carolina absolutely influenced my wanting to tell this story. Yeah. And it actually even played a bigger role in how this uh, series came to be. Uh, Jimmy Goodman, who's one of the executive producers of the series, his family owns WRAL in Raleigh. Mm-hmm. And unlike a lot of, and he and I grew up together, we went to high school together and we were friends growing up. And he had been seeing a lot of what I was doing in the documentary world and, and kind of you know, in the film world. And simultaneously, they were going through their archives. And unlike a lot of local news networks, 
most local news networks didn't keep their archives past a period of a certain number of years, but mm -hmm. WRAL kept everything. Wow. And so they were digitizing their archives and they got to the 90s. And he called me up in 2018 and said, you know, Matt, I'm going through and seeing all the footage that we have that no one's seen in mm -hmm. all this time. I, I think there's something here. So we started talking about the project. And then in 2019, I fully got on board and um, we started working on it together and working with a great team of journalists from WRAL, um, Clay and Shelly and Jay and just an amazing Emmy award winning team that had already started working on the story. And then the third part of the kind of equation was Chris Muma had taken Daniel Green on as a client. So she mm -hmm. was uncovering all this new evidence that had never been kind of known publicly before as part of the filings that she was making with the state in, a, in an effort to get Daniel an ev a new evidentiary hearing. So when you kind of had the convergence of all these things and then the root of all of us kind of being from North Carolina, and like I said, being from North Carolina, this was reported on the nightly news every night for years. It was, it was one of the biggest stories and probably the largest criminal case in the history of North Carolina. So we had an awareness of it that I don't think the rest of the country did. And, you know, I've, I've said this before in some interviews, like as I was 13 when, when the crime took place. And from, that's a seminal kind of experience and a moment in your life that you remember, I, I kind of compare it to, for my generation, the Challenger explosion. Now, when I was younger, I think I was like first grade when the Challenger uh, explosion took place. But, you know, I was in my like just about to be a teenager and I was a huge basketball fan. And this was a major, major thing. So, but it was also one of those things that kind of stuck with me in a way that I was like, I don't think anyone's ever really told the full story here. And that was what our goal was to really get to the bottom of the truth and do everything we possibly could to tell the most definitive story around this case and really what transpired afterwards. You mentioned how you got a huge bulk of the never before seen footage from WRAL with, you know, through mm -hmm. your friend. Um, how much other access did you receive in terms of footage from other news affiliates or um, testimonies from key individuals or court documents that helped you in your research process? And how did you go about retrieving that information? Uh, we went through a variety of ways of retrieving the various pieces of information. You know, those range from evidence that was emerging about the case because of what Chris Moma's efforts that she, in her public filings, uh, a lot of other archival that we, you know, the majority of the archival is from WRL's archive. I think that's one of the reasons no one's ever told this story kind of in a definitive way before is because they didn't know that the footage existed. I think anyone who would have tried to tell the story before would have hit certain roadblocks because they didn't have the, the elements to tell it completely. So once we realized we had this unbelievable archive, that that opened up the door for us to be able to, you know, do justice to the telling of this story. And then we did, you know, traditional, you know, FOIA requests and the state showed us evidence that had never been seen at trial, had never been seen outside of the trial, you know, evidence photos and documents. Um, we also were able to get the court audio, which had never be, even been digitized prior to this project. It was all still sitting on physical hard tapes at the Robinson County Courthouse. So um, it was a multi-year kind of investigation that we conducted to create this series. And we used pretty much e every means at our disposal to get as much information about the case. You know, even the trial transcript was 8,000 pages long. And I don't think any, most people had never read it before. And so even before we had the audio uh, of, of the actual trial, 
uh, which no one has heard outside of the courtroom uh, in since 1996, we had the transcript. So we were going through the transcript and really finding these elements of the stories, many of which were shocking, uh, mm -hmm. the elements that took place at trial. But uh, And then once we had the audio, we knew that we could represent that to an audience through those audio files and then kind of bringing the trial to life because cameras were not allowed in the courtroom. We kind of brought the trial to life using photos and kind of a almost a virtual courtroom that we built to match those audio files. Mm -hmm. um, we mentioned before how, you know, the last stance really brought this murder into the forefront and I think is really what's propelling this series to, you know, gain more eyeballs and more people wanting to know more about this because they first found out about it um, about a year ago. Um, something else that I think is going to bring this more to the forefront is the retrial that Daniel Green, one of the um, two that were convicted of this murder, um, he is seeking that retrial, I think a couple months ago, he announced that he wanted to seek the retrial. Um, so how much do you think that will, you know, um, make this now relevant, this series and want more people to watch this? Well, I, I think it's, it's an immensely relevant story. I think, you know, it's one of the things for me that was difficult in telling this story and sad in many ways is, you know, this is a story about loss. You have, you know, the Jordan family has lost the patriarch of their family and he was a beloved person both by his family, but also by the state of North Carolina. He was a celebrated individual. So you're dealing with the loss, but you're also dealing with the loss of, you know, these two young men, you know, mm -hmm. whose lives and their families' lives were forever altered because of this. And when you're telling a story like that, you kind of really have to take it with a great degree of respect um and and you have to be very you know sensitive to telling a story that's as deep as this but i do think the other part that made it sad in many ways is we're talking about issues 30 years ago that we are still dealing with as a society today we're talking about corruption in law enforcement and racism in the criminal justice system and these are things that 30 years later are very much part of our public conversation today and unfortunately are still necessary to be a major part of our public conversation. I think those elements make this story very, very relevant to, to today, even though it is a story that took place nearly 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Would you consider it all a sort of pro or epilogue episode, um, depending on where this ends up? Because this could be pretty major how this retrial what this results in with this retrial do you think um there could be a result that would compel you enough to sort of finish this story because it seems like it's still not finished yet this story yeah you know there was a number of developments because you know as i mentioned chris Muma from the north carolina center for actual innocence uh took daniel on as a client um and is petitioning the state for a new hearing um, based upon a lot of the new evidence she's uncovered and that we detail very much in the show. Absolutely, if the story progresses, we want this to be the defin definitive telling of the story. We want this to be a complete telling of the story. So if the story progresses, we would absolutely want to continue uh, as those efforts uh, come to light. And, you know, it's, it's been, you know, we, we weren't sure what was going to happen, but there were a number of developments. And I don't want to kind of give away too many spoilers for people that haven't seen it yet, but... Yeah there were a number of kind of curveballs and unexpected things that took place even as recently as last summer um, as we were in the process of editing and we had to go back and change our edit because new information was coming out, new developments took place. So if Daniel is given a new hearing, I believe personally that 
And I think this series shows this, that there is a question of fact about what took place in this case. There's a lot of new evidence that a court has never seen before. And I do believe when there is a question of fact, an evidentiary hearing is what our legal system provides for. Um, so I believe that it is just that an evidentiary hearing takes place. And if that happens, of course, we would want to document that and complete, complete the end of the story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so you come from the world of producing, having been at it now for nearly 20 years. But what really interested me is this is your first time directing, I believe. So I'd love to know what uh, sort of compelled you to step up to the plate for the first time to helm this project and um, what the challenges were that came along with that since this was a first for you. Yeah, it was definitely it was it was definitely a first for me. And, you know, I've produced a number of projects over the years and I've been very fortunate to produce a, a number of really, you know, beautiful and compelling films over and, and TV work over the over the past 20 years. Uh, I think the, the personal connection, I mean, I I watched a lot of this unfold as, as a, you know, as a child, basically, as 13 years old, and it stuck with me for that period of time. So when I got that first phone call and we started talking about it, and then as I really started diving into it even more, it was something that, you know, I talked about with everybody on the team. We, we said, you know, they, actually, I think it was Shelly Leslie who said to me, said, you know, I think you should direct this because you have a deep understanding of, you know, not just the, the, the filmmaking process, but also, you know, the, the, uh, you've been living, you know, un had a living understanding of this case for many, many years. And that really compelled me to want to take that step. I, I'd been looking to do it uh, eventually. I'd always, you know, wanted to direct uh, specifically in the documentary space. Um, and I just, like I said, I felt a really deep connection to telling this story. And that felt like the right decision to move forward with as my first, you know, official directing project. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, we talked about how there are very, you know, shocking or surprising aspects of this case that viewers um, wouldn't have known beforehand that just knew about it very vaguely. Without giving anything away, what do you think were some of the most shocking aspects of the story that um, audiences will take away from the series? Well, I, I think, you know, one of the things we do in the series, and I don't think this is kind of giving it away, actually, I think it's probably a precursor for some people to maybe understand before they watch the series, is yeah. the history of corruption in this county where this crime took place and where the crime was investigated uh, and where the trial took place. And we kind of take a real deviation after the first episode and we, we bring audiences back about 10 years um, in the second episode to provide a, a history of, of this case. And I think once you have an understanding and then people might be a little bit like some people have said to me, like, oh, I really didn't know what was happening. You really went away from the core story. And we really felt strongly that you have to have that understanding to understand what's going to happen in the rest of the case. Mm -hmm. uh, if you question that there's a pattern of corruption and misinformation and mishandling of evidence in this county, then you're inevitably going to question what, what is presented at trial. I think the biggest thing that stood out to me that kind of shocked me the most was um, how certain pieces of evidence were presented at trial as opinion, yet entered into the court record as fact. Right. Um, our, our legal system does not actually allow for a lot of that practice to take place anymore. Um, things that are said as opinion cannot be entered as fact. But if you look at a lot of the, you know, and, and I think the other side of it is when you look at the trial, the lack of actual physical evidence in this case you know, when you see the early videos of when they discovered James Jordan's car, you have the sheriffs on camera saying, we found no blood in the car. Mm. 
Yet when it gets to trial, they're saying, oh, we have blood evidence in the car. And we get into that in great detail of how that all transpires. But it, I think that was one of the things that has caused so much kind of, you know, mystery around this specific case is that there was a lot of misinformation. And I think people led that, that led people down to certain kind of conspiracy theory rabbit holes of, oh, well, there must be things that they're not telling us. And that led to a number of really unfair conspiracy theories that pointed at the Jordan family. And I'm, I, I'm hopeful and, and glad in this series that we get to kind of dispel a lot of those rumors right. and show audiences the truth. And But there was questions about the actual evidence. And that's what I believe led people to come up with these hypotheses and these kind of conspiracy theories, because you couldn't make sense of the information you were being told. So what we tried to do is lay all of that out for an audience to understand why that didn't make sense. But some of it's shocking. It's like some of it's shocking when you see reports of blood evidence that say inconclusive, yet in the court record, it's being stated as fact that it's blood. Right. And I was not aware that that was allowed in our legal system. But at that time, things like that were. Yeah, a lot of blurring the lines between opinion and fact, which just makes yes. things messy. Um, so I I'd love to know um, if you heard anything at all from Michael on how he received the series or if he's even seen or heard about it at all. Any reaction from him since this came out? We have not received any reaction. You know, yeah. early in the process, we did request uh, interviews we, we, through a spokesperson, uh, both out of respect, you know, for the family, because if they wanted to have a voice in the telling of the story, we wanted that, them to, to have that voice. But they respectfully declined. Um, and, and that was not, un, you know, unanticipated by us, you know, that we, this is something that the family has spoken on very, very briefly in very limited fashion, only a handful of times. And we greatly respect that even though Michael Jordan is a public person, it doesn't mean he needs to grieve in public. You know, there are certain right. things that people should be able to retain their privacy on. And the loss of a parent is absolutely one of those things. But out of respect, uh, we requested and they said, no, thank you. And we respected their wishes since then and haven't communicated with them. But I do hope that if they were to watch it, that they would sit back and say, look, obviously this team spent a lot of time and effort uh, and, a, and a substantial portion of their own lives to try to tell the truth, which is something that the media at the time did not really do. The media at the time really jumped to a lot of conclusions, um, specifically the print journalism. If you look at the print journalism at the time, they're immediately jumping to conspiracy theories. And I think that that probably also created, you know, almost like a wall around the family and ever wanting to talk about this because they, they were not being treated fairly. And we tried to make every decision in the creation of this series so that everyone involved was treated with respect and fairness. Yeah. Um, this series is now currently available to view on Amazon Prime through the IMDb TV channel. Um, would love to know how Amazon and IMDb found out about this project and want to get involved. Yeah, it was. Uh, so we were working on it independently for a, a few years. And, you know, we, we tried actually something a little bit different than we've ever done, um, especially with the television project, was we really edited the first episode um, all completely on our own. It was still rough with visual effects. It wasn't a complete vision yet. But, you know, a lot of times I think, especially in the documentary space, people put together, you know, a sizzle reel or a sampling of footage um, and a deck that kind of lays everything out for the series. We wanted to go a little step further with this and really show potential distributors 
this is what we're creating. Um, so when we went to have those conversations with distributors, a number of the distributors were able to, sorry, there's a loud car driving by. I'm still in the parking garage offset, trying to find oh, a little shit. area offset. Sorry. Um, no, I can hear you no, fine. No, no. Okay, great. Um, so, so when we went to potential distributors, uh, they got to see more of this series than most uh, distributors get to see at, at that stage in the process. Um, and then Amazon came to us and said, hey, we have you know, this new vertical, it's IMDb TV, it's gonna be a free streaming service. Um, and that was really exciting to us because we, want, we did not want a barrier for entry for an audience. We wanted audiences, to, any audience, to be able to access this without having to be a paid subscriber. So when that option presented itself, we got really excited and kind of accelerated the conversations very quickly with them as a partner and they've been wonderful to work with. That's great. Um, I, I didn't know that IMDb TV was a free channel on yeah. their yeah. platform. So that's great that there's no barriers there. Um, I had a couple more questions to ask. Um, sure. I find your career very interesting because you weave through documentary and narrative film a lot. Um, is this intentional or do you just go wherever the stories that most interest you take you, no matter whether it's a doc or narrative? And do you have a preference between the two? I, I, you know, as a filmmaker, my, as a director, documentary is what my, my focus will be as a director and will okay. continue to be as a director. But as a producer, I've always just wanted to work with great artists and tell, you know, interesting stories. You know, we, I, and there's a lot of variety there. You know, I, I've kind of always said, you know, you look at some of the films on my resume and you don't necessarily see how one might connect with the other. But if you look at the decisions that were made as to why to, oh, Excuse me one second. Let me just, you know, I think, but as a producer, if you look at the films that I've made, they, they don't on paper necessarily look very similar, but the decisions as to why I wanted to make them or my company wanted to make them are actually very similar. We always kind of talk about it like we're, if we're operating an art gallery, it's like curating one gigantic group show where all the paintings on the walls are very different, but, the, but you see a, a through line between the, the types of work that it is or the type of filmmaker that it is. And a lot of times that's been working with a lot of emerging filmmakers on their first or second films. Mm -hmm. um, and always just really looking for someone who's doing something interesting in their, in their space, in their lane, right? And that's led us to make films that I'm immensely proud of. Um, you know, my first documentary was a sports documentary about LeBron James called More Than a Game. Um, after that experience, I knew that I always wanted to continue making documentaries and have continued to do that over the past 15 years since we first started working on that project. Um, and then narrative film is, was always my first love. So, you know, um, whether it's a film like Native Son or Brady Corbet's Child of a Leader or, you know, you name it. I mean, I I'm just immensely proud of the work that I've been able to be a part of. And uh, I love them both equally. But as a, di as a director, documentary is, is the thing for me. Yeah. Um, I want to switch gears and talk real briefly about um, your HBO series, Betty, which you're an EP on. Um, the first season premiered last spring to um, a lot of positive um, responses from audiences and critics. And now season two is about to drop next month, I think in June. So tell me what viewers have to look forward to in the new season and what it was like filming this time around. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, my, you know, I, I will be very uh, honest about this, that, you know, my, executive producer capacity on that show is, is, is more limited. I was actually in production on this documentary series um, while that, that season two was shooting. But what I will say about that show is it's really a testament to Crystal's 
Moselle's vision. Crystal is, I think, probably one of the most talented filmmakers we have working today. And we had met Crystal first uh, when she was making The Wolfpack um, and did not end up working together on that film because it was just, you know, the system that I, that I was working on with my company, we weren't set up yet, really. But mm -hmm. we said to Crystal, uh, the minute you have your next film, please just come. Let's, let's, we want to work with you. And that led to Skate Kitchen. Um, and we worked on Skate Kitchen together. And then obviously Skate Kitchen kind of became Betty in many ways. You know, it, it, you know it's, a, it's a reinterpretation of that film um, with, with the, the actual Skate Kitchen, who are amazing young women themselves. Um, but really that show is a true testament to Crystal. I mean, it's, it, her vision is kind of unmatched and she's put together a great group of other creators and artists. And I am just so proud and happy to be a part of it, you know, and to get to watch her work and kind of continue to grow that vision as a filmmaker. Yeah. Um, for my last question, you mentioned how you're in the midst of work right now. Can you tell us what you're currently working on? And if you can't, are there any other projects you're about to work on that we can look forward to? Yeah, I, I cannot speak about this exact okay. one, but I'm happy to come back and talk about it at a later date yeah. um, and have a conversation with you about it. But our next film that's coming out, which is a film that we produced, a documentary that I'm really excited for audiences to see, is about ASAP Rocky. It's called Stockholm Syndrome. It's going to premiere in June at the Tribeca Film Festival. And it is uh, a real-time telling of everything that Rocky went through uh, when he was arrested in Sweden. And it's a really compelling, interesting film that I'm so excited for audience to see. I mean, basically, uh, we started working on the project a few days after he was arrested. We spoke to his representation and they, were, they wanted someone that could work immediately. So within a week, we had um, uh, cameras filming in Sweden, in Stockholm. So audiences will get to really see all of the behind the scenes of everything that transpired with his case and also how that shaped him as a, a human being and an artist moving forward as he's creating new music. So I'm really excited for audience to see that uh, in about a month or so. That's exciting. Well, we're looking forward to that and whatever it is you're working on right now. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, well, Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me on this Sunday. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please take a moment to subscribe to The Hollywood Podcast for free on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Max Geshwind. Thanks for listening.